0: Coming to you from the studios at the Center for American Progress in Washington, D.C., I'm Lisa Sharon Harper, president of Freedom Road, a consulting group dedicated to shrinking the narrative gap. Welcome to the Freedom Road podcast. Each month, we bring together national faith leaders, advocates, and activists to have the kinds of conversations we normally have on the front lines. It's just that this time we've got microphones in our faces and you are listening in. And this month, we welcome back legendary civil rights activist and theologian, Ruby Sales. Auntie Ruby Sales to me, Mama Ruby Sales to you. <laughs> Just let to make that clear.
1: Oh, right, Yeah, let's make that real clear. <laughs>
0: That's hilarious. But true. It's true. So Auntie Ruby's conversation with us back in February blew up. A lot of people were listening. And actually, we had an amazing conversation on yes. Twitter that sprung from that episode. And she had a TED Talk come out and the same month that already has reached 1000000 Viewers, I mean, actually more than one million viewers. One million
1: sixteen thousand.
0: Wow. Okay, sorry, got to be specific. Don't <laughs> even one viewer. And in fact, I'm sure I'm one. I'm like about three of those. <laughs> three of those viewers. <laughs> so Auntie is back to help us to commemorate Dr. King because we are. In that month where he passed, he was assassinated, and Auntie was very, very much a part of the movement at that time. And we want to glean from the lessons that she learned through her participation in the Southern Movement for Black Freedom. We would love to hear what you think as well. So please. Tweet to me at Lisa S. Harper or to Freedom Road at Freedom Road Us and always use the hashtag Freedom Road Podcast. You know, that way we can track the conversation and really, truly some truly amazing conversations have taken place there over the last few months. So so let's keep it going and keep sharing the podcast with your friends where, you know, our network is growing. Our listeners are growing. (laughs) So thank you so much, Auntie, for coming back. Thank you for having me. I mean, really, truly, I will never... I really don't think I'll ever forget that conversation. It felt so thick. And we kind of said this before, but it it even went over by 20 minutes because we kept the conversation going after we had already wrapped the episode. So we put out that bonus little episode toward the end of the month, and I hope that people get a chance to experience it because it really, truly was. It felt like we knew... That it was thick with the spirit, and so it was like we were treading softly even with every breath. Did you feel that too? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. So, Auntie, I want us to just dive in because we really do have a lot to talk about. And would you mind going there with us back to the day that Dr. King was assassinated, that he was shot down on the balcony of the Lorraine Motel in Memphis, Tennessee, Where were you? Do you remember where you were on that day at 6.01 p.m. Central Time?
1: I don't think I remember where I was, more so than the meaning of his assassination. Ah. And we have to contextualize the assassination of Martin Luther King within a larger narrative. Okay. And that narrative begins with John F. Kennedy. Ah. And it and Malcolm X. It includes Malcolm X. Mm-hmm. It includes Martin Luther King, and ultimately, it included Robert Kennedy. Yeah, that's right. So, with the murder of the assassination of Martin Luther King, who represented the Southern freedom movement, and Malcolm X, who represented the Northern freedom movement, mm. you had a split in a progressive movement coalition between northern and southern black people. So that had tremendous ramifications beyond what we've begun to even talk about or understand. Wow. With the murder of Robert Kennedy and John F. Kennedy, you basically had a fracturing Mm -hmm. of a radical liberal movement that contested colonialism, that began to contest the war in Vietnam. So you had the fracturing of a radical progression in this country that we're still trying to recover from. Mm. And And so Martin Luther King's assassination must be seen within a larger context. It was more than losing a person. It was losing a movement. It was losing a historical moment.
0: That's actually really deep when you think of it in that way because you don't just think of one leader being shot down. Instead, honestly... And maybe this is the reason why we're in the moment we're in right now, where you have just yesterday, there was white nationalists gunned down forty-nine people in New Zealand, because there's actually a rise of white nationalism around the world. Maybe that moment it feels like was war.
1: Actually, it, well, was, the it was a rise of nationalism
0: in
1: a war. began in Texas. Under the leadership, the the modern rise beyond the John Birch Society began in Texas. Okay, you're going to have to explain that with the assassination of John F. Kennedy. Explain that. Explain, like, break that down. John Birch. What does he have to do? John Birch Society was Mm -hmm. a right-wing society that Mm -hmm. existed in the '50s that pretended to be anti-communist when, in fact, it was anti-democracy. And so that what you had with the assassination of John F. Kennedy was really the rise of a right-wing movement starting right there in Texas, which Ross Perot's wife was one of the spearheaders of that movement, Whoa. Ross Perot, who ran for president. Wow. So Texas is very significant to the rise of white-wing populism in this country okay. as the seed and heart of that movement. Wow, wow. That's actually where I'm sure
0: that's worth a podcast in itself or I mean, maybe a true podcast or even just an episode here. What died on that day? What was it
1: that died on the day that Dr. King was assassinated? An America that was democratizing. Mm. A movement that was bringing together disparate communities that had the potential to become one, but had been fractured by racism, classism. And at that time, heterosexism and sexism. So what was fractured was the continuity of that movement. It splintered the movement. Got it. Also, it created in people a resident a hesitation about movement because if they could kill John F. Kennedy, if they could kill Robert Kennedy, oh, wow. if they could kill Martin Luther King, and if they could kill Malcolm X, then surely they could kill us. And so you've got to contextualize those assassinations within COINTELPRO. The project J. Edgar Hoover Institute Against Activists, a counterinsurgency project
0: right. against
1: uh, movement people in this country. Now, my it's,
0: mom actually talks about that. She talks about how she knows her phone was bugged. Yes, she knew that when she was at yes, the SNCC yes, office, yes, they knew yes. that their office was bugged. Yes.
1: Is that what you're talking Absolutely. about? Absolutely. The okay. hounding and the profiling mm-hmm. and the jailing and the psychological terrorism of movement people in the 70s the Panthers, SNCC. Right. Is that maybe even why the Panthers became what they
0: were and H. Rap Brown and all of that? Like, there was a militarism that that rose out of the movement in that time, in the 70s. Was that in response to the... Well, no, the the Panthers
1: came out of the movement in Lowndes County, Alabama, Mm -hmm. which was the first movement called the Panther Party. And so that name was taken up by movement, starters in california okay okay but the movement was a dynamic process and you must not confuse the northern freedom movement with the southern freedom movement Mm -hmm. the northern freedom movement was more marxist was more materialistic the southern freedom movement had embodied within it the aspect of spirituality wow and so that was a real difference
0: marxist and materialistic that, in some ways, they feel they feel diametrically opposed to me. Because when I think of Marxism, I think of, you know, everybody's equal,
1: that kind of... No, by materialism, whatever, I mean that the greatest, the highest state of being is an economic equality oh. material in that respect. Whereas in the South, we wow. thought that the highest state of consciousness was our inner life, which then would impact what we made on the outside world. Wow.
0: Wow. And that makes total sense. That's in many ways how even right now when we think about the, well, I don't want to get into the politicians today, but when we think about the different pieces of the movement, some of them are really economic focused. Yes. And others are really flourishing focused, freedom focused, but having to do with economics, but actually having going deeper into the soul. Is that what you're talking about? Yes,
1: because Marxism, let's forget, did not honor or privilege any aspect of human human consciousness to them was materialized. It was not an inner kind of spiritual it was not rooted in any spiritual Aspect of reality. That's deep.
0: I mean, and actually it's really, it's actually explicit, right? Because Marx says there is no God, doesn't Marx? Marx is actually an atheist. So therefore that philosophy would naturally then not concern the spirit.
1: Yes, the highest good for Marxism was economic and the state, not, not our inner lives.
0: So how do you, what difference do you see in the outcomes of the two movements in terms of what they accomplished, and I don't mean I don't mean to put one above the other, but rather literally, what what's the distinction? Well, between the distinction
1: them? was that don't forget now the Panthers' their first major public showing was when they took the guns to Sacramento to the Capitol. Right. You never had guns in the South because there was a whole different value in terms of nonviolence. Yeah. Nonviolence could not work in the world that was rooted in material. It had a different materialism. It, it, there was a different Way in which one understood the human body. Mm. Wow! In a spiritual, a reality, you would say something like, "Gonna lay down my sword and shield by, down by the riverside and study wild no more." In a Marxist paradigm, you would say, "Rise up, rise up! My God, seize the moment and take up arms! Take up arms!" Where are we now, right now? I think we're paralyzed neither one are basically in our consciousness. It's, it, our movements are ahistorical in any respect, whether it's the Northern Freedom Movement or the Southern Freedom Movement.
0: Yeah, and it feels like, even for myself, I, mean, I train on this stuff all over the place, and yet there are levels of this, complexities of this that weren't taught to me, and, and I didn't understand, and I can imagine others don't understand either. So we have And this happens. This happens. As as you tell history, it becomes a clean story
1: as opposed to investigating the nuances. Well, I don't think it becomes. I think it's deliberately, our memories are deliberately erased. Mm -hmm. Because the empire depends on this memory. Because within the construction of this memory, they can redefine who they are to us and who we are to each other. They can make themselves be our benefactors, and they erase the fact that we we were the guardians and the architects of our rights and liberties. Wow.
0: So I am a strong believer that we can't understand. The glory until we understand the depths, right? We have to come to understand the sheroes and the heroes of the civil rights movement. And I think actually the Southern freedom movement in particular, as giants among humans. We we that, that's that's kind of how we have come to understand you, yes. Dr. King, Ralph Abernathy, Diane Nash, you know the whole everybody. Everybody was like a giant, or even like a little demigod disconnected no, we from not Earth, giants. Disconnected from family, disconnected from history. We y'all just showed up on the scene. No, no, and made no, no. I got it correct. Happen.
1: That we were not the icons in the movement. We were there because our community stood up. Exactly. Without the community, we would have been nothing. But we don't
0: know that. That's the thing. Is in the, in the retelling of the history, we're not told about your communities.
1: We're only told about you, about the about the icons. And I know that you fight that. So and I fight now. that because only God is an icon. That's idolatry. Well. That's the official story where human beings are raised above culture mm-hmm. and raised against a, uh, above a historical moment, rather than being a part. Of that historical moment. It tells the story of the individual rather than the story of the community's body of work. Isn't that part of the colonizing? Yes. Process, actually, yes. is to disconnect people from their communities. It dehistoricizes the individual from the people's struggle in the same way that Jesus the Jew was dehistoricized from being a Palestinian Jew in the Roman Empire mm-hmm. in a spiral of violence.
0: So with that in mind, I had a moment when I was down in Montgomery the last time I was there, and I realized, wow, like Dr. King's family... They weren't obviously from Montgomery, but they were from Atlanta. They were from Georgia. But they were in the South. Most likely they were enslaved at some point. And then I started, I started to imagine how I never even thought. I never even thought that he came from, he rose from that. And that possibly your family had been enslaved My at some My grandmother was point. born
1: in 1867. Uh-huh. Two years after the Emancipation Proclamation, wow. my great-grandparents were enslaved. And so that we have to understand that the Southern Freedom Movement comes out of the community of enslaved Africans who became African-Americans. It is not a movement that extends out of Northeastern liberal progressivism. It's a unique kind of movement mm-hmm. that had its roots in what we call the runaway slave movement. Mm -hmm. It is particularly and uniquely Southern. It's embedded in Black folk theology. It is a spiritual movement. Yes. And it's funny because I think that, do you
0: know where your ancestors particularly were from? They were in Georgia?
1: They were in Alabama.
0: In Alabama? Yes. Where in Alabama?
1: Around Talladega, Really around Birmingham and Talladega.
0: Oh, wow. Were they, do you know how many generations, how, do you, how much do you know of your family's story? Because you I, know I'm deep into my that My right brother
1: now. knows much more than I do because he's a family historian. Mm. But I do know that my grandmother for some could read and write and she was an old maid school teacher. And she, my grandfather was an, was an AME minister who met my grandmother who was an old maid and they got married and had 13 children.
0: What you know a lot? They had thirteen kids, and that was after the Civil War.
1: Yes, that was.
0: (laughs) So are they?
1: They're not still alive. Oh no, my grandmother died in 1967. Okay, it's striking to me that you rose. You rose. Well, no, I didn't rise. The community kept its eyes focused on the prize. It had a community project. It was determined that it would not become broken. That we would not be on broken winged birds the community deliberately and intentionally set about to till generations to have education be the project we did not rise they brought us up they raised us up we were raised up out of the community's impulse for freedom the community's determination to survive and not be broken Mm -hmm. i'm a product of that pragmatic optimism I don't take credit for it. Yeah, yeah. And any drive I have was inculcated in me by the community that told me that I could do anything I wanted that I set my mind to do which told me that I was going to be great not because of what I did for Ruby but because of what I did for the community so I grew up thinking that I would do something fabulous for my people Mm -hmm. that's what we were told that education ambition meant nothing unless you used it for the people
0: these are our stories you're listening to the Freedom Road podcast where we bring you stories from the front lines of the struggle for justice Okay, everybody, imagine this. Imagine one bus, 40 women, three days, multiple encounters with the diverse stories of our foremothers' struggles to attain, protect, and maintain the right to vote. We're going to travel from Seneca Falls to New York City to Atlantic City and then D.C., and then we're going to spend one full day on Capitol Hill talking to our legislators about the need to protect women's right to vote. The Ruby Woo Pilgrimage is happening again. Space is limited, and registration is closing soon. So apply today at freedomroad.us. Wow, well, Auntie Ruby... One of the things that blew my mind the last time, and also sparked the conversation with the young people on Twitter in particular, was the difference between the connection to community and, and, and I think, I think... You were very patient with us, but you really, really did break it down. I think what I'm going to do is I'm going to create a Twitter moment out of that just to be able to capture that moment so people can actually read it on my Twitter feed. So if they want to get to it, they can get to it there. But you recently in your TED Talk, I want to talk about, I want to jump tracks a little bit and talk about reparations. Because in your TED Talk, you said, we must ask ourselves, where does it hurt? And what is the source of the hurt? That was a brilliant question. I mean, I really, I just thought, wow, that's exactly right. It's not just what hurts and how do we fix it, because people can fix it without dealing with the source. Absolutely. Right? So I want to ask you, where does it hurt? And what is the source
1: of the hurt in your view? I think that the decimation of all of our identities is stripping the dehumanizing, the humanization mm. of all of us and the reduction of each of us to one thing by the guardians of whiteness, which is the color of our skin. Mm. And I think that when you strip people bare, it creates in them a longing to be whole. And that's where the hurt, the fracturing of the human self mm. is where the hurt is. And I also think that we hurt from the white lies that have been told to us about who we are and who others are and who the guardians of society are. And so I think that we also hurt from the trauma that was carried out by the guardians of whiteness, whether it was state-sanctioned murder or mob violence. I think that white people hurt from being the carriers of violence that stripped them of their humanities Mm -hmm. and said to them, that they must always be afraid, they must always look over their shoulders and protect themselves from the other. And so I think that there are ways in which we are all hurt the same way, Mm. and there are ways in which the hurt is different. But it all comes from systemic and spiritual blows.
0: Do you think that some of that fracturing of identity might have happened in part because of the ways that our families were separated? I mean, you have such a strong connection to your community and the land where your community raised you up. And I was recently doing research, you know, for my next book. And I literally I was actually writing a piece of it. And I started to cry because I started Mm -hmm. to realize the pattern of loss. in in one of the strains of my family tree. And it starts with slavery, with children being sold away, and then it goes on after slavery to the great migration and people leaving because of the terror and never seeing their family again. It also happens because of death that happens in the family because there's no hospitals in their area who will take black people, right? So there's all levels of dismembering of families and family identity and sense of self
1: that happened also as a result of slavery. What do you think of that? Well, I think that's true, but I think we have to go a little bit deeper. I think that nationalism in Europe camouflaged class differences and made Europeans believe that the king's interests were their interests. Mm -hmm. And it it made them believe that they were one despite the prevalent reality in their lives of poverty and classism. When Europeans came to this country mm-hmm. and suddenly found themselves wanting to build a nation and they couldn't and have and asking the question, how might they unify what was classism? So what they did was hide classism. Once again, and unify around the color of the one skin. Yep. And so all the white differences were eradicated under the false notion that all white people are the same and all white people lead the same lives. So there were, although people call themselves Irish Americans, they did not identify with the totality of their ethnic histories. They identified more with being white. Although white women call themselves women, they identified more readily with being white. And so that that allowed the guardians of society, the empire keepers, to maintain their power with the deception of oneness. Wow. And you see that the whole way through. You see see it all the way through. Yeah. So
0: not only in the division of the overseer versus the master and the the gentry class actually runs the entire state, right? And also is a master and also has overseers and other. But because they're all white,
1: you can have the illusion that you're all the same. And then that translates. Absolutely. And that becomes a way of holding together the cohesiveness as you create a world against other people hmm. white unity is always constructed over and against something white mm-hmm. unity is always predicated on anger and hatred against other think about it well i want to
0: ask you about that cuz do you think it's actually anger and hatred or is it
1: protection of the self protection it's anger of- It's non-redemptive anger. Okay, so explain that. Non-redemptive anger means that I believe that you are a danger, that you are my enemy, and that I must constantly be in a war position against you. It's war. It's uh, warfare. In order to maintain that stance, I cannot love. I cannot love you. I must hate you even though I don't know you personally. I must be angry with you. I can't have tender feelings because if I did that, then I wouldn't be able to do the things I need to do in order to save my life. The minute I love you, you're no longer an enemy. You're a neighbor and a friend. So it's really non-redemptive anger.
0: That does make sense. I mean, honestly, it makes sense out of some of the Twitter feedback that I get. <laughs> no joke. Like like you put something up and you're just like showing like some thoughts or something and all, you just get pummeled by the most demeaning and dehumanizing little tweets that people can do. It's like, you know, throwing darts because you had had an idea that was different than theirs. But it's not that. It's actually because your idea threatens their whiteness, threatens their centering. Because you are
1: an enemy combatant. That's how I'm seen, right? Yes, as an enemy combatant. Even children are enemies, Combatant, wow. Whose future must be destroyed because the efficacy of white supremacy depends on the fact that the futures of young children of color should never flourish. So what scriptures guide your thinking on
0: repair, what it takes to repair,
1: what race broke in the world? Let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like a steady stream. Hmm. Justice is the only thing that will repair the harm that has been done. Money won't do it because you give people money and keep the same structure, or you give people certain status and you create an elite in the same structure. Nothing short of justice. Let's be involved in the process of building justice. It's a call to action. And the other scripture that I think about is, which you probably will find bizarre, It's a scripture that says that render unto God that which belongs to God and Caesar. Because the the irony of that is nothing belongs to Caesar that does not belong to God. Mm -hmm. If everything belongs to God, then everything belongs to us. Wow. And not to Caesar. One assumes that Caesar has a divine ownership over certain aspects of creation Mm -hmm. that god has rendered caesar this divine authority but if you understand that that isn't true that nothing that caesar has does not belong to god because god made it all wow then that's reparations
0: see now I speak on this all the time and and you just took it one league deeper. I'm gonna now have to quote you when I speak, but that's true. Nothing Caesar doesn't C- own nothing. Nothing. Everything belongs to God. So if everything belongs to God, then what we must do with it is what God requires us to do with it. Absolutely. And to that love is justice. justice. Yes. That is justice. That so is you, justice. How do, you, how do you define justice? Because I mean, I'm sure
1: there are people listening to this going, I think it's okay, a harmonious relationship. That rearranges our relationship with God, each other, and all aspects of humanity.
0: A harmonious relationship,
1: relationship. that rearranges our relationship, relationship with, with God, God, each other, and, and all aspects, aspects of, of, huma- creation. of creation. Yes, that allows wow. us to treat even animals the way we want to be treated. treated the earth the way we want to be treated. It really is a call to harmonize the I with the we and the we with the I, to be a part, to see ourselves as interconnected with others.
0: Mm -hmm. When I speak on as I normally talk about how justice is as things should be. I mean, in simple form, it's as things should be, but as things should be is in radically good relationship with each other. Yes,
1: it's Isaiah's vision Mm. of the, the people shall live in houses that they build, and shall eat the food that they plant, and no longer shall people die at premature age, and that the lion shall lie down with the lamb. Mm-hmm. And they won't learn any war anymore. That's justice. Because the very nature wow. of oppression creates a warlike environment. It is contentious. There can be no civility
0: where mm-hmm. there's
1: oppression. Oppression is anti-civility.
0: So I get questions sometimes, and especially when you're talking about reparation, right? So right. I recently did a thread on this, and, and that's where, like, I got pummeled, right? So a lot of people have no category for justice that isn't retributive. You know, it, it isn't retribution versus Restorative or transformational. Can you explain the difference between those two and where you find them in Scripture? I didn't prep you with this question. <laughs> so, I mean, but I know you got it. You know, I know. Well, you,
1: I think yeah. that we find it in the notion that we've just talked about it in okay. a beloved community. I think that the empire, mm-hmm. when the empire goes out to seek justice, it's warlike. It's punitive. And we internalize mm-hmm. The empire's view of justice, and rather than God's kingdom come on earth. Wow! And so I think that that is really the Lord's prayer. Really lays out the territory. Okay. Of restorative justice. Okay. Where you, if you've done anybody harm, what do you say? If you've transgressed against anybody, what do you do?
0: Please forgive me. You don't me.
1: even begin to eat until you've what? Beg their apology. It lays out the formula. For reparations and for human restoration, ah, the Lord's Prayer, the central
0: prayer that Jesus taught prayer. us to pray, absolutely is actually a pillar of a biblical understanding of reparation yes, repair, and
1: restoration and re- restoring
0: yes. our relationships with each other. I hope people are really listening and that you take notes and that you go back to your churches and that you preach this and that you teach this in your Bible studies. This is what we do not understand. This is why we can be in an America that has only recently said an apology and that apology had explicitly something attached to it that said, but this doesn't mean that we owe anybody anything, right? So where do we go from here? Do you believe that any nation or institution – has done reparations well?
1: I don't think reparation is an absolute that ever gets finished. Okay. It's a dynamic process that we're engaged in throughout our entire life and that nations are engaged with. Mm -hmm. That no one ever reaches the apex of restoration or Mm -hmm. reparations because we are constantly engaged with each other and fracturing relationships. And so that we have to rebuild constantly that which we continuously tear down.
0: So part of the issue here in the United States is that we have taken steps. I was, it's funny, because I was actually listening to the news last night or this morning, and I saw that somebody who did something wrong a state has actually called, I think it was actually Donald Trump, quite honestly, has called him to pay restitution. Yes, it was. He, they called him to pay restitution for the people who were told that they were giving to a charity, but he used their money for charity. Right. right, right? So they they have an individual, they told an individual to pay restitution. And they're like, pay up. You know what I mean? Pay up. The money needs to be in the bank by X,
1: Y, Z time. And that, that's a recent but that's, infraction. Yeah, that's a material transaction devoid of a moral imperative. I get that. I get that. And we can come back to that.
0: But my point here is that it's recent. And for Native Americans, African Americans, Latinos, Asians, women, LGBTQ people, basically people who, who have been pushed to the margins, we have layered oppressions. We have
1: layered And money we, can't fix that. Exactly, yeah. The spiritual and moral injury uh, and that's coupled your point. with physical and economic exploitation. Mm-hmm. Money cannot fix that. The only thing that can fix that is as Martin Luther King says, a radical transformational values and how we began to live in the world with each other. Redemption, resurrection, restoration.
0: A transformation of our relationships with each other, how we relate to each other. With regard to power. And a real, but but it could, takes money, though. It's going to take money to make that transformation. But, not,
1: but people don't talk about that. What they want is a hard, cold cash. As if you can pay money for having ripped someone away from their parents during enslavement. If you could pay money for having captured people and put them on a, a ship and brought them to a country where they didn't even know their names. Money can't repair that. Money
0: cannot repair that. Money, money cannot, cannot
1: repair that. Money can't repair the impact of the
0: terror in the South during Jim Crow. That because made the problem with seven that is million people run even north. Even
1: though you might give black people money, if we have not gone through critique and self-critique, we will use the money in the same way that the empire has used the money, and we will harm each other because we have not had a transformation of values. Mm. We are not so holy that we are not universally capable of doing the same things that other people have done. Wow. Our wants do not make our actions holy.
0: But, okay, so so going back to the spiritual. So here's the thing is that as I've been working on this book, the next book is about my family story, and it's actually called A Reparations. It's part of the reason why I'm sitting in this so much, and you will be quoted all over the place, so let me just say. When I consider the loss, when I consider... The devil lives in the details. Right. The devil lives in the details. And we know the scope. We know the roots story. We know Aunt Kizzy. We have a sense of the... The overarching story we have a sense of the politics of that like okay so we went from the civil war to jim crow to civil rights to now we're in mass incarceration and now we're trump era we have a sense of that story but it's the devil lives in the details so the sense of the to understand the loss to understand the nature of the brokenness you
1: have to understand the details whose brokenness
0: of our nation
1: Because you have to be a broken human being to put other people in chains. You have to be a broken human being to sell your own child of your body on an auction block. Yes. You have to be a broken human being to rape women whom you say are dirty and filthy, but you turn around and rape them. You have to be broken to allow your husband to rape women and then turn around and be angry with the woman. You have to be broken. So so what I'm trying to say is that, that enslavement and all of the systems that we've been forced to grapple with are systems that break all of us. It's not just something that happened to black people. It is something that happened to white people. And it is because it happened to them first that it happened to us secondarily. Yes. Robert
0: Zellner talks about, which I'm sure you know Robert yes. Zellner's Snick also. He talks about something that happened to the soul of yeah. white folk. Do you want are you familiar with this?
1: Absolutely. Okay, yeah. you want
0: to share a little bit like what do you think of his thought there? What he's talking about is he says there's there's a malformation that happened to the white soul. And it's happened over two hundred and forty six years of enslaving and killing and maiming black people in the same way that you Pin up and kill a chicken that you have. I think that's in the a part yard. of
1: it, but I think the maiming began even with the doctrine of discovery. I think okay. the maiming existed in Europe when the aristocracy wanted to be God. Yeah. and made people call them Lord and your your highness. They mm. indulged in the worst form of idolatry, and I think that really that idolatry, that desire to be God. created a maiming in the soul.
0: Wow. And do you believe that that... See, I've been thinking about this, that colon is the spirit of colonization, the spirit of empire. It rolled from Europe, but not only from Europe, but that's what's impacted us, from Europe all the way over to America, and actually all the Americas, and New Zealand, and Australia. It is what we're dealing
1: with right now. It's Constantinian Mm -hmm. neurosis. What does it mean to link the cross with the word of God? What does it mean to link Christianity with the empire? Even in the South, you saw that being played out where enslavement was justified by Scripture and Southern white Christians identified with the mission of the empire, which was enslavement.
0: Rather yeah, than I mean, the it's mission the mission of God,
1: which would have been liberation. It's the reason the Southern Baptist Convention exists. Right, right. And so I'm saying that. So the question is what was indigenous already there in the European psychics that made them create a world of enslavement and genocide and all forms of human degradation? Wow. And I think that there's something about when you kill people like that, you're really trying to kill the other in yourself. It's a form of self-hatred. We never think of the empires having self-hatred or never feeling like they're good enough. But that's really what it comes from. To wow. kill someone is to really kill a part of yourself if you believe that we're all interconnected. And that really, that leads me to ask the question, what happened in Europe? Like most people that I know of who
0: focus on European history or writing or something, like it's it's Chaucer, it's the
1: fables. the It's the succession of kings. It's the succession no, of queens. No, slow down. It happened because Western Christianity chose the model of Constantine that link the cross with empire. Christianity is spirituality. You link in the soul, the spirit of a people with empirism, with money, materialism, mm-hmm. domination, greed, mm. state-sanctioned murder. That's where it began to happen. That's
0: deep. Are you saying that empire the brutality. the brutality
1: of empire... Linked with the mission of linked God. Linked with the cross. Linked with the cross. is creates actually... a spiritual malformation mm-hmm. and a deformity. Because how can you link God with empire violence? How can you link God with conquest. How can you link God with genocide? Because then what you're doing is that you're creating a twisted God. You're creating a God who loves one people more than, he loves, than God loves another people. You're creating a God who smiles on the empire while punishing people who are not part of the empire.
0: Walking Freedom Road from coast to coast and around the globe, this is the Freedom Road podcast. Thinking Cap is a weekly podcast hosted by the Center for American Progresses, Michelle Jawando and Igor Volsky. In the current political moment we find ourselves in, full of protests, anger, and activist momentum, Thinking Cap hopes to lay the groundwork for the bold, progressive policy ideas we need to continue moving this movement and our country forward. You can find new episodes each Thursday on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and AmericanProgress.org or wherever you get your podcasts. Also find them on Twitter at ThinkCapPod. I was just having a conversation, an amazing conversation, which maybe we'll have to bring onto the podcast at some point with Rabbi Sharon Brous. We were on a plane together a couple of days ago and literally we talked the whole time. And the thing that I shared with her that has been rocking my world over the last year or two has been the reality, like understanding the reality that no person, not one who wrote that text. The whole Bible, the Torah, any of it, nobody was from the social location of empire. Nobody was white. Nobody was European. They were all brown, indigenous, colonized people. When you understand that, it places not only Jesus, but the whole religion back in its context, which is the context of people struggling against empire, struggling against colonization.
1: When you understand that, a Jesus becomes... with the fundamental question, as Mary laid out in the Magnificat, right. to who shall our bodies belong? Oh. Shall it belong to God or shall it belong to the state? And oh. she made it clear that her son, Jesus, would belong to the people and not to the state. Wow.
0: Wow. Well, now I need to go back and do some more Bible study on the Magnificat. The,
1: the, the thing that I want to just say to you that, yeah. uh, that I think, so when Jesus was crucified by the Roman Empire, yes. mm-hmm. the state has a way of crucifying heroes, popular heroes, mm-hmm. and then turn around and stealing them from the people and making it their own the way they did Martin Luther King, the way they do John F. Kennedy. Yeah. Wow.
0: Okay, can we just, like, sit in that for a minute? But we can't because it's radio, so. Okay. <laughs> the state steals the hero that they kill. That's right. And then they
1: popularize it and also neutralize it. Neutralizing it by de- dehistoricizing it, making the hero belong to them rather than to the people. So we state-based religion lifts up an icon. Um, White but, religions have always been inextricably bound with the empire. Black folk religion, Native American religion, contested that because Mm -hmm. ours was a, a religion for liberation. We had to stand over and against an empire in order to be human beings.
0: So this actually brings me to my next question here. I was recently in Brazil. Okay, so I was there. It blew my mind learning their history, the reality that, you know, when they were set free, it wasn't because of a war. The people at the top decided to declare abolition because they were afraid of an uprising. They were deep into eugenics. And so um, at that time, they made a a big call for all of Europe to come and fill and whiten Brazil and never the subjugation of enslaved Africans in Brazil was so heinous yes. that they had 4.8 million people that they shipped from Africa to Brazil. But at the time of abolition, in the course of their nearly 400 years of slavery... Who are you of, of slavery, they? Who are they? They, the, the Portuguese. Okay, let's the be Portuguese, clear. The okay. Portuguese, thank you. So the Portuguese shipped 4.8 million people to that land over the course of nearly 400 years. And at the time of abolition... In 1888, they only had 4 million people of African descent. That spells death. That spells massive amounts of death. So the level of oppression of people of African descent in Brazil is something that... Honestly, we don't even know. We don't even understand that because they had a steady flow of people who just simply they worked and died and brought more, just work them and die them and brought more. And I'm not obviously not trying to create a hierarchy of oppression, not at all. But just to say my mind was blown. So when I then got there, one of the things that also blew my mind is they've never had a mass movement especially with centered within the black church there, that of resistance. And part of the reason I was told by the people there is they don't have a black church. The right. black church in America res- exists as a resistance movement. The black church in America is a resistance movement. They, we started resisting the law, resisting oppression. And they never had that. So right. as a result, they never had a civil rights movement. So they really looked to the United States to our civil rights movement for inspiration and guidance. And here's what I want to I want to ask you. So recently, Jair Bolsonaro was elected to be their president. He promised before he became president, to destroy, jail, or exile his political enemies. And chief among his enemies are people of African descent, indigenous people, and LGBTQ people. And the very first thing he did when he entered office was to lift the human rights protections by executive order on those three people groups. And black folks make up 54% of the people in Brazil. 54% of the people in Brazil have no human rights protection anymore. And then you have indigenous and LGBTQ who – it's actually – I'm sure there's lots of overlap there. So as – at first, I struggled to know how to counsel my friends, right? So my friends who were there who are largely targeted, and I thought to myself, our situations are not really comparable because we live in a democracy, even during the civil rights movement, we lived in a I democracy. I challenge that. May I yes. just
1: interrupt that? Yes, I challenge you may. that profoundly. Well, that's what hit me. I was like, "Wait a because minute," because this this whole state of emergency yeah. that the president, that Trump, wants to declare, is predicated on a racist lie of brown and black migrants being enemy combatants yes. who pose a threat to the natural order and the security of the United States, and therefore should be criminalized, dehumanized vilified, raped and if you look at the UN Commission on Genocide Mm -hmm. that was founded in 1947, Mm -hmm. there are four particular articles that imply genocide and America's guilty of all but one. Wow. And it hit me that What they're doing at the border right now is exactly what they did to you in the South, what they did to... But what they're still... No, what they're doing to black and brown migrants, what they did to black people in the prison industrial complex. We have been constantly victims of a Holocaust. Yes. A dispersion. Uh, breaking up of our communities, the commodification of our bodies for profit. Don't forget, now, the immigration industrial complex also yields profit, $347 a night per bed.
0: That's exactly right.
1: So basically, the aha moment was we actually aren't in a democracy, nor have we ever been. We have Not really. Vincent Harden would say that we have been engaged in a process— a building in America that is yet to be born.
0: Wow. We have been engaged in a process. of building, building in, in America, America that, that, that is has yet, yet to be born. born.
1: Wow. Each generation of people who fought for social justice are midwives at the birthing stool of a vision that has not yet been concretized. It's funny because in your TED Talk,
0: you ended your TED Talk saying, I still believe in America. Yes. You believe in that vision.
1: I believe in the vision. I believe in the transcendental vision. Mm-hmm. And visions are never created in a perfect environment. They're aspirational rather than concretely existing at the moment that the vision is created. It represents that which is possible when we're at our best.
0: So those people who are quote constitutionalists, as in they want to know what was in the mind of the founding fathers when they said this, that, or the other, what they're doing is actually dragging us backward to the worldview of people who existed in the midst of slavery. You cannot have and did not democracy
1: and a white supremacist nature. It's, it's not nature. possible because white supremacy mitigates against participatory democracy it says that only certain people have the right to participate in shaping the meaning and the destiny of america and today when the demographics are predominantly brown and black the country is trending vigorously towards fascism in the maintenance of white supremacy. It is not by accident that democracy is under assault in a way that it has rarely been in this nation, because you cannot have white supremacy mm-hmm. in a growing two-thirds colored population.
0: So what advice do you have to our friends who are listening in Brazil? How do they resist in a dictatorship because that's basically the context that you were fighting in in the south it is the context that immigrants are fighting at the border right now because it's not really the rule of law the rule of law does not reign here did not reign in the the jim crow south so
1: actually we have something to share with them and i want to know what lessons did you learn they have something to share with us and so what i would say is that we must sit down and bring our best ideas to a larger conversation, to a universal mm-hmm. and a particular conversation where we might bring to the conversation hindsight, insight and foresight, where we can carve out both a universal and a particular vision based on our best ideas and our best thoughts. And it must be embedded not in the moment, but in history. But I think that to see ourselves as missionaries, we are totally up against. We're in it. We're in it. We're in it. And we're not doing anything about it. We're letting black and brown children be stolen from their parents. We're letting women be raped in these sites of terror called detention centers. Mm -hmm. We're allowing black and brown people to be assaulted. And yet we are silent. Ethnic cleansing. And that's not by accident either in a growing yeah. two-third colored America.
0: That's exactly right. Here's a thought that that I had, and I want to ask you about this, is that I remember listening to Diane Nash speak once, and she talked about the fact that when they boarded the bus for the Freedom Rides, um, this was actually in the movie, The Freedom Rides, yes. um, or Freedom Summer, and when they boarded the bus they actually signed their oh, wills, yes. the last will and testament. And the thing that strikes me is that that is a level that we know not of today. And when I was yes. in Brazil, a friend of mine said, you know, we're not a fighting people. We go to the beach. <laughs> like, you know what I mean? They don't, they're not used to resistance or struggle. But I want to know what is it that they're going to need to find in the depths of their souls in, depths of, in order to resist. Because this is not a joke. Like, the, he has literally lifted their human rights protection. Nothing,
1: not even death, can separate us from the love of God. It is a mountaintop consciousness where death is not the stranglehold on human activity, where we understand that we're part of a continuity. And even though I might be killed, that I'm part of a larger narrative, a meta narrative that continues after. In SNCC, in order to do the things that we did, we had to move up to a higher level of consciousness where we could not be afraid because we understood that nothing, not even death, Mm -hmm. could separate us from the love of God and the will of the people. And it's about human transformation. It's about a higher consciousness. We must move beyond an empire consciousness that says that if we don't exist in physical form, then our relevance to history and humanity has ceased. That's the stranglehold that the empire has over us, death. Death of our jobs. Death of our status, death of not having money, death, death, death. It's a death-driven oppression and spirituality. But when when you're not afraid of death... When you're not afraid of death, when you're not afraid of loss, when you turn loss not from grief, but as a means of celebration and reaffirmation... And resurrection. and That's right. Then you are really on the road to a mountaintop consciousness. And that is is the spirituality that was fostered in the movement? Absolutely. You couldn't be in a, in an environment where people were riding around with shotguns and blowing up freedom houses and putting you in jail and beating you. You would have been paralyzed with fear. You had to be transcendent. You had to move beyond a fear of death. You were being freed from the power of the empire to control your life through death. You
0: really have to believe it.
1: You have to not only believe it, but you have to grow it. Grow it. Explain you have to experience that. it. Mm-hmm. It's not showing up at an event. Mm-hmm. It's really a process of one's inner life. I, I know I've been changed because the angels in the heaven done signed my name. It's knowing that you, it's change. Nothing will happen until we have experience a new level of consciousness until we move as Moses and King and Ella Baker and all of the saints moved up to a high level of consciousness where they began to see themselves differently, where they began to see God and the whole aspect of creation differently Mm -hmm. in relationship to each other, and understand that we're a small speck of a larger story. And even though we might die, the impulse of the people for freedom will move on. And whatever work we put in it will be a Part of the larger narrative. Nothing, not even death, can separate us from the love of God.
0: You're talking about church. You're talking about people. People did church as movement.
1: Movement was church. Movement. Movement was church. Movement was God's kingdom come on earth. Movement was the mountaintop consciousness that King talked about, and he says, "I have been to the mountaintop. I've stood where Moses stood." I do not fear death. I do not fear any man. But I've seen the mountaintop. And you have to have that level of consciousness. Movement is not about an activity. It's about a movement in one's inner life and one's outer world. Do you know that song? Could you sing it for us? I can't sing (laughs) No, you can. That was... Really seriously. I can't sing. But anyway, I would just (laughs) say to our Brazilian sisters and brothers, Mm -hmm. what our ancestors taught us, you might own my body, you might break my body, but you will never control my inner life.
0: The conversations leaders have on the road to justice. This is the Freedom Road podcast. Thank you for joining us today. The Freedom Road podcast is recorded at the studios of the Center for American Progress in Washington, D.C. The episode was engineered and edited by David Dult of Sandberg Media. Freedom Road podcast is produced by Freedom Road, LLC, and we consult, coach, and train and design experiences that bring common understanding, common commitment, and lead to common action. You can find out more about our work at our website, freedomroad.us. Stay in the know by signing up for the updates, and we promise we will not flood your inbox. We really do invite you to listen again next month. New episodes drop around the first week of each month. Join the conversation on Freedom Road.